This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Hi. Sometimes when I invite guests for a World Beyond War podcast, I have a specific topic in mind, often related to a crisis in the world or a campaign or action we're working on. Other times, I simply want to bring in a couple of people with creative minds and start a conversation without an agenda. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with two fiction writers, two contemporary novelists, who are also deeply tied to various activist movements. We began this conversation with no expectation of what we would talk about. By the end of the episode, you'll see that we end abruptly without even the chance to say goodbye, which is not only because we burned through an hour so quickly, but also because our recording unfortunately crashed due to a technical problem at that moment. Since I like to keep these episodes to about an hour anyway, I'm releasing this conversation exactly as it happened. It does end abruptly, and I hope that leaves you eager to read the books these two writers have written and to listen to our next episode next month. Here we go with episode 22 of the World Beyond War podcast, Activism and the Imagination, with Vanessa Veselka and Rivera Sun. Welcome. We like to branch out into different areas here at the World Beyond War podcast. In an earlier episode, we talked about war and activism with two novelists, Roxana Robinson and Dawn Tripp, and I'm looking forward to talking to two more writers whose work I really admire and value today. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, talking to you from Brooklyn, New York, and the first of the two novelists I'd like to introduce is Vanessa Veselka, whose most recent book, The Great Offshore Grounds was published by Alfred A. Knopf in 2020 and was longlisted for the 2020 National Book Award, which is pretty awesome. Like her superb first novel, Zazen, which is the book that turned me into a Vanessa Veselka fan, this novel is hard to describe except to say it's about real people in the United States of America, by which I mean stubbornly independent and adventurous souls who don't fit neatly into the corporate boxes of get a job, get a house, and behave as you are supposed to. Her characters remind me of so many people I know, deeply emotional, committed to philosophical ideals that often clash with reality, half broke, and struggling to get by without selling out. Vanessa's website leads with the words, I hold out hope we can be better humans. And in that spirit, Vanessa, I think you'll find lots of common ground in the anti-war movement. So hi, Vanessa. Hi, Mark. It's great to see you and hear you. (laughs) The second person I'm thrilled to have as a guest here today is Rivera Sun, whose children's book, The Way Between, was one of the bright spots in my reading for 2021. And since this is the first book in a series about a wonderful, heroic, peace-building character named Ari Ara, and since Rivera's other books include The Dandelion Insurrection, The Roots of Resistance, and several others, I think I'm going to be reading more Rivera Sun books. What I really like about the Ari Ara books is that they don't offer simplistic explanations of what nonviolent resistance is about. As anybody who's ever tried to be a peacemaker in the real world knows, it can be a twisted and contradictory path. And I like it, Rivera, that you respect the intelligence of children and young adults to know that they will be able to understand some of the deeper morals to these fables. Rivera, you're also a very active peace builder. You are the editor of Nonviolence News. You do workshops. You're syndicated by Peace Voice. And you're a member of World Beyond War's advisory board. So hello, Rivera. Hi, Mark and Vanessa. So excited to be in this conversation with you both. And um, yeah, I get my best ideas from actual activists. So I'm always trying to stay involved, if only to get the best uh, story ideas, but actually for so much more. You know, that's actually interesting because the first question I'd like to ask to both of you is about the balance between your, let's say, your ideals or your mission in life, what you consider that you are doing to help the world 
and your desire to tell stories. Do you think the hardest part is needing to like live a double double life? I need like five or six clones to do all the things that I'm passionate about. But I see the writing and I think Vanessa's nodding over there because I think it's a continuum. It's it's each a piece of the puzzle of how to show up in the world in these times. I think our time we live in times of immense change, necessitated change. Some of it very exciting, some of it very scary. And I think that people need stories that are rooted in how we're navigating these kind of things for better, for worse, uh, for the challenges and for the possibilities. And so for me, living in connection to movements is part of what I do for my writing work. And my writing work is part of what I do for the movements too. So that it's, it's just one long continuum of how we show up in these times. Mm-hmm. Show up is a great phrase. Vanessa, you know, I'm, I'm always wary. I've known you for a bit now and I've interviewed you before on my own literary blog, Literary Kicks. You know, I'm always wary when I try to describe your books. Um, and so, uh, so I'd like to know how you describe yourself as a writer, and I'd like to hear your answer to the same question. How do you balance your, your ideals and your, your mission in life with your artistry? So um, I also struggle to describe my work in part because the things in the way that I see it are always going to be different from what somebody gets out of it. Uh, and so I sort of have a different answer. So as a writer, um, fundamentally, I have an encyclopedic and maximalist tendency. Um, I'm always trying to get everything in about a particular culture or like a totality of something. I do. I did have somebody introduce me once, a friend of mine. I was at a dog park and she was with another friend and she walked up and wanted to introduce me. And she said, hey, this is so-and-so and she's a chiropractor. And she turned to me and she said, and this is Vanessa. And she's paused for a second. She said, she's a philosopher. Hmm. And it was a really interesting thing because I thought like, yeah, fundamentally, all of my work is philosophical at some level in the sense, in the truest sense of not that I have an agenda or a set of beliefs, but I have a set of desires to understand. And those sets of desires to understand drive my work. And the way that they show up is um, I, <clears throat> wherever I'm uncomfortable, Wherever I feel conflict and uh, in my sort of philosophical underpinnings, uh, wherever I feel like I don't have answers or that there's something extremely uncomfortable about those answers, that's where I tend to write into the space of my characters. And so the the other version about this book is people ask me, oh, what's your elevator pitch? And I, first of all, hate that sort of capitalist reduction of like, I'm supposed to entertain you for two floors and not strain your attention. You know, I, I really hate that. Um, but, you know, so I, I jokingly developed one for this novel, this latest one, because usually I say, what do you write about? I'm like the human condition. I can't tell you, you know, um, you know, but the, I did develop one. I said, oh, you want my absolute elevator pitch? It's a neo-pagan nautical thriller that takes place mostly on land about the open door policy in China. You know, I mean, it's uh, that's how I see parts of my book. <laughs> and my editor was like, you have to say that, but don't say it to people we're trying to sell the book to. <laughs> so, like, he was great about it. Anyway, so uh, yeah, activism. I am a union organizer as well. Uh, I left it that work for 16 years and during these last few years really felt the need to step in, particularly after I was done with the ma majority of the writing on the novel, to do something and, and do the work that I know very well. And I ended up thinking I was going to take a field organizer position um, for a couple of months and then ended up being director of organizing for the largest union in our state. And um, right now we're on strike. And I wish I could tell you it's a balance. It's not a balance. I don't write when I do this kind of work. Mm. It's not possible. So balance for me a lot of times has been a sort of alternation of extremes. I also don't work a lot when I'm doing a lot of writing. Like I am a very obsessive, immersive thinker. And so 
I, you know, I always like to say, you know, balance isn't just being on top of the fulcrum, it's being on the two extremes, you know, and, and that's kind of how I do it is I'm in one mindset or I'm another and they are not compatible. They're not compatible. And so right now I'm in this one mindset and very much looking forward to getting out of it and being in another. (laughs) Um, Wow. Well, a a couple of follow-ups. First, you mentioned your state. What is your state? I'm living in Oregon. I was I was raised in New York, but I'm, okay. I've been living in the Pacific Northwest for a very long time. I'm working with nursing home workers in COVID, which is why it's just so intense and memory oh, care. Oh wow! Oh, very heavy. And we have so much to talk about. I wonder if we'll get to COVID in this in this hour. Um, we definitely have so much to talk about. Um, I may be wrong, but I'm going to extend a guess that Rivera you aspire to more of a balance because I know you as a member of World Beyond War. I see you as somebody who might strive to balance more your activism side and your literary side. Am I right or wrong? Uh, I think you're you're right in that. Although I think I'm getting a little better at it over the years. I think my, my original answer was to, you know, get up at dawn and start going and not stop till midnight. And um, that wasn't very sustainable. And so as I get a little bit older and wiser, hopefully, I'm actually trying to, to see now that I know my writing process a little bit better before it shifts again, because these things do shift over time, seeing how I can really set some some limits to what I can show up for and making opportunities for other people to show up as well um, in terms of like what work do I take on and what work do I am ask, uh, make a position open for someone else, you know, particularly around paid work, which is rare and important to remunerate uh, organizers. So yeah, finding balance for myself also sometimes includes making a, making sure opportunities get to other people who are looking for them rather than being like, oh, it's all about me. I'm the best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I would say it is a, it is a challenge. And I think when times get really intense, like this last year, A lot of creative people uh, reported having a lot of difficulty doing their creative work, even when it was directly related to helping people transcend, walk through, deal with, process uh, the pandemic, the economic downturn, the social strains of the ways that we had to relate to each other, Um, that for creative people who care so deeply, it's sometimes it's really difficult to be open and receptive to what the world needs. And I found that a challenge last year, and I think others did as well. And so I feel a little sea change happening, but I think it's the challenge right now is that we we are really in a, a time period where we have to shift from utter reactivity, like defensive maneuvers for survival, to offensive organizing for survival. That if we do not push the current administration beyond what it's even dreaming of doing, um, let alone actually doing, we simply will not meet a lot of the imperatives of our timeline of change. I am really thinking a lot about these times that so desperately need our, our ability to envision, to imagine, to look beyond the crisis of the moment, to um, take the the solutions that have been laid out as maybe visions or policy ideas, and be able to translate that into human experience. What does restorative justice look like when we walk through it as characters? What do heroes look like when they're not solitary heroes, but they're part of unions or organizing or movements? Uh, What does that look like when our best tools for change are rooted in nonviolence versus violence? And overturning thousands of years of storytelling right up until the Marvel action comics that says, you know, grab the gun, shoot the villain and ride off into the sunset with the girl, right? There's so much wrong with that narrative that it's absolutely unrelatable for these times. And yet that's still what a lot of our mass storytelling uh, machine is churning out. So I think um, creative people like myself and Vanessa and so many more, our job is to carve out the space for stories, both fictional and realistic, to be told differently, to be expressed differently, so that we as a mass culture can move into something entirely different as a a world story. Um, I really do relate to that. Um, And 
wanted to add, there's an intersection to me between um, some of the, the struggles around that. I do. I'm terrible at sustainability in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is something I'm trying to grow more and really focus on um, letting people around me make mistakes and take on more responsibilities so they can you know, develop. I think the thing that comes up that's very hard is this question of urgency. And, um, you know, there's a saying, if it's urgent, it's not important. If it's important, it's not urgent. But we are in a time where it's both. Mm. And um, not that urgency hasn't existed before, but there are existential urgencies that are very profound. And I think because I'm working in healthcare with this stuff, it's also like people are dying. It's on fire. Like, you know, there's a whole and it's 24 hours. So trying to find separation around that urgency is interesting too on the page as you're writing, right? You have to create a certain kind of urgency to go through a long book and, and you can't burn people out though either. And so there's a really direct relationship I've found. And, you know, I think you can see this between my first two novels, um, the shorter, the voicier a, a, a character is, the more like, you know, like intense and voicier, the shorter the work has to be. Because you just like people in your life, you can you can burn a reader out, right, with the intensity of a narrator. And so you have to like expand in different ways to different scopes to tell different stories. They're not comparable. And one of the things that I'm also very interested in that you mentioned is the hero's journey, because I think it's very damaging in many ways in the way it's told. It's in, and that it's had a damaging effect on our culture. On the one hand, it's it's the Siddhartha story, right? Like that's probably the most uh, definitive, you know, structural framing um, yeah, for a three Buddha. act. Do you mean Buddha when you say yeah. Siddhartha? Okay, yeah, yeah. just yeah, for the three act play. You know, he's born into riches. He doesn't see the suffering around him. He walks outside. You know, then he spends his time as an ascetic, you know what I mean? And he goes through that. Then he finds the middle. You know what I mean? Like it is the most television narrative structure and it's 2,500 years ago old. So there is something in our culture that tells us about change in, uh, in ways that are, are deeply human. And at the same time, particularly I think for Americans, um, the constant personal restructuring to make ourselves the center of the story as individuals from the hero's journey is very damning. Wow. Um, And yet at the same time, and this is why I get so conflicted about it, I have seen people many times who come from the most oppressed circumstances with the most trauma around them use that story to transcend their lives. So it's like this imperfect tool that can allow you to do one thing and reinvent and at the same time, it only has certain outcomes of reinvention in an ultimate way. And so I think that the other element that um, in touching on sort of the, the need for pushing coming from unions. So I, I am a I would say I'm not as completely committed to nonviolence as some of as some of the deeply committed peace workers I know in the sense that I don't I'm not trying to kill the seeds of anger within me completely. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see that as being the ultimate, you know, response. I do believe in elements of self-defense, like somebody, you know what I mean? Like I, 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 but I also believe in restorative justice, but there's just things. So working with unions, one of the things that I think people don't come into contact with is that there is a level of violence. The act of withholding labor is, is a right of humans. It's the thing that makes them not slaves, right? Is that you can withhold your labor. And when you do it together, you know, you're, th- there's a purpose to it and a collectivity to it that's extremely powerful. And yet when you withhold your labor, there are all sorts of collateral damages. And, and, and I think the way our culture talks about every union campaign, including the one I'm in now, where we're on strike, the employer, the boss always says, the union is slashing our tires, they're threatening our family. And none of that's happened. It's a line that's in every union campaign, any anti-union campaign. And it kind of hides where the real challenge is, which is all like I work with caregivers. And so if they step out on strike, while there are agency staffing that has to come in, there's all it's caregiver strikes are a little bit different. They know there's a cost to the resident in front of them. And they are weighing the collective benefit of changing things for future residents. It is deeply painful 
and deeply difficult for people to stand on the edge of that cost and say, my life also matters. And the life of future sustainable systems matters. And I have to do a kind of violence here in this moment, potentially, to get there. And that's like a very nuanced thing that I think is, I just wanted to put on the table too, when you're talking about a more extreme, uh, not extreme, but a more, uh, a more hundred uh, percent committed nonviolent, like, you know, like even expressing anything in this way is violent, like raising your voice is, violent. you know what I mean? Like there is a, there is a sort of, yeah, I'm going to stop talking. I want to put over here the, the whole thing you were just saying about violence and nonviolence and unions, because that's fascinating, and actually go back to what you were saying about a hero's journey and then get back to the other. Um, there's, there's so much to talk about here, um, and I'm already throwing away a lot of my questions because we're off and rolling here. Um, so, no, this is great. Um, I'm very interested in what you say about the concept of the hero, possibly. I mean, I, this is what I'm taking from what you're saying, Vanessa, that maybe this reinforces that American streak of, of selfishness or self-glorification, which I think many of us, especially after four years of Trump, have had enough of. Um, not that Trump was by any means the, the origin of, um, you know, of our sicknesses in this country. But um, I'd love to hear Rivera respond. And first, I just want to give my own thought on that, because I've been thinking about your character. I've already mentioned your character's name several several times, Rivera, partly as I, I love the name Ari Ara. Not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it's a great name. And, you know, when I see this character, I see Harry Potter, I see um, Zelda. But the, the unique difference is that she is learning peace building. She, she doesn't start as a peace builder, but by the end of the first book, she begins to discover what peace building is all about. And, and that is not always what you think it is. With that in mind, Rivera, what do you think of the hero's journey? You know, I was reading Sharon Blackie, who's a really interesting uh, feminist and mythologist from uh, Celtic European tradition. And she was really, she's also a psychologist. So she is very familiar with like the, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey motifs. And she says the way that it's largely failing, particularly women, but really entire cultures, is that the solo journey is not the only hero's journey that there's a whole other kind of motif of the collective journey, right? So when we think of things like the Lord of the Rings, which is definitely a epic hero's journey, uh, the collective is what gets, gets you to the moment where you can throw the ring into the fire. Um, so if we look at some of our older tales and we start to dust off the narratives and we look outside of cultures that have been, really struggling with um, certain kinds of sexism and patriarchy and domination for a while, you start to see these other motifs of what heroism looks like. And a lot of them are rooted in friendship and cooperation and collaboration, which we know now is the underpinning of human evolution and survival, not competition. So I'm always interested in my writing about bringing up the thing that we're familiar with and getting to the growth edge, getting to the place where that starts to shift, whether that's, um, you know, Ariara in the books, fulfilling kind of a classic fantasy motif with a very unclassic <clears throat> nonviolence, peace building, uh, nonviolent action twist, or that moment when she recognizes that she doesn't have to do it all herself. She doesn't have to be the, the solo shining light star. She may need to support others in expressing their own voice, which is actually the theme of the third book in that series. So I really love to bring up those things we're familiar with and then twist them in ways that we're not expecting as a culture, right? So there's always a place where our culture is exploring. So maybe our... Uh, our classic hero, you see this in Netflix fantasy all the time, you know, our classic hero is suddenly the girl, not the boy. Uh, they're suddenly black, not white. Um, but like, what are the things that we're really not questioning about the stories that we're telling, right? So yep. to go under deeper than the superficial and into the things that really are transformational, but not to just go utopian on it, but rather to go into that like fertile ground of change. So like in Ariara, just to finish, that she doesn't live in a perfect, peaceful world. She lives in a world torn up by war and violence where she has lost family members to this, and so has everybody else she knows. 
So not what is peace when everything's perfect, but what is peace when everything is unperfect, right? That's the interesting story because that's the world we live in. I think that what you're saying is uh, really, really powerful and really, really true. And I think the only other aspect of the hero's journey that I want to add to this is the aspect of audience and celebrity. So there is in the hero's journey always an audience that witnesses the glory at the end. There is always an audience that is is functioning in that. And that is very American. That has been taken up in the sort of ideology of what success looks like. And one of the things I was also very interested in my book there, um, one of the pivotal chapters in it is takes place in a castle. And one of the funny not funny. One of the central ideas in it, it really deals a lot with the issue of ambition. And one char- one person says to one of the central characters, or the other way around, um, when did you get okay with being nothing? Hmm. And, you know, that was a driving idea for me in that book. And the hero's journey comes up in that book a lot as a sort of damaging thing. But I guess that question is, I think that we can't, I think the thing that actually holds us back from telling the story of the collective a lot of times is the lack of an audience for personal attention, but also the lack of an audience for the the concept of return, the concept of succeeding, the concept of, of all of that is the, is the witnessing of victory at some level. And, and I think that that's that question of celebrity, you know, the access to media And access to celebrity is one of the primary currencies of our culture. You know, you could be poor as hell, but if you're an Instagram, you know, star, it's kind of a different thing. Like there's just all sorts of complexities. So I just wanted to say that uh, the, the relationship of audience is an area that I also question a lot with that. I actually want to refer to another word that I think Rivera used, which is survival. Right. That was a word you brought up. And Vanessa, if I were to try to think of a word that really describes the themes of your novels, it might be survival. And I'm thinking of a very moving scene in your recent novel, The Great Offshore Grounds. Um, I hope this is not any kind of spoiler, but a a woman is horribly raped um, and suddenly, unexpectedly. And what I learned that I never learned before is that her her first action is to immediately take care of the medical side of it. And for some reason, you know, basically to, to, to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. Um, and boy, how practical she becomes. She does not dwell in anger. She, I, I don't remember her reacting in anger at all. She reacts in survival mode. And that, that was so moving to me because I, 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 as a born biological male, I, I've never had the vulnerability to rape. And, all I can imagine is that one would react emotionally and, and to see, I wonder if it was even something you intentionally did. Like, this is how, a, this is how a person who knows how to survive lives. You don't react emotionally. You react practically first and then you react emotionally. So that scene is actually was one of the reasons I moved publishers <clears throat> um, because there was a disconnect uh, around that scene that I, that sort of was um, indicative to me of just not having the right match for a variety of reasons, you know, editors are moving, things like that. And the reason I mention it is I think that there's a generational um, aspect to that scene. So in the very, very necessary work that has been done in the last 30 years to raise awareness around sexual trauma, how deep the impacts can be, how profound and um, for all the right reasons. It has also formed uh, an idea of one response to it that is dealing with it, which is the emotional response of falling apart, preferably in public. And, you know, in public meaning also with friends. I mean, I, I don't mean necessarily in public, but like this idea of if you're not going through this huge thing in some visible way, you're not dealing with it but people have different ways of dealing with it. And one of the things that I've thought about, experienced and seen in my life, is there's an enormous class difference. And I remember trying to explain this. So the, the scene that happens, happens very with very little foreshadowing. 
like pretty much none. And it's over in like three minutes. Yeah. And it's mostly gross, not violent. I mean, it's violent because of the, you know, the, the, but it's like, it's gross and then it's over. And that part of the character's confusion about the moment is like, do I have to carry this word survivor or victim or rape, rape for three minutes of my life? You know what I mean? Like it was just three minutes of my life. And do I now have to carry this? And she really doesn't want to, you know? Um, there's the practicality. She's a very practical character and she's got to move forward. And that is actually the experience of most women in my, in my, I'm only speaking of my experience. And the reason I, I say this is, so I got in this conversation with this editor who said that she felt it was only in for shock value. Yeah. And I said, no, it's, it's just that that's most rapes, <laughs> you know, you don't see it coming or you didn't get out of the way. And I said, look, there's a real issue in, which is that if you're, you know, an upper middle class, you know, urban, you know, person like there is a class difference in one place. Sexual abuse of children happens at, you know, at every level Mm. that, you know, but rape is a function and part of visibility, status, access, and range. So survival is the way you get through. It's just like, this happened. This is totally shitty. This is awful and disgusting. And I can't afford to quit that job. So I'm going to avoid the person. Or I can't afford to like tell my husband that his brother raped me because of the violence that might ensue from that and how that will affect my family. Or I can't afford, you know what I mean? And so there are, I've met many, many women who if you were to call the situations where things went wrong and they didn't have a choice, rape would say that there was 20 times in their lives pretty commonly. I myself have had multiple times that if I chose to use that word, you know, and then there, and and where that gets really murky or even is like, you're in the situation, it's starting to happen. You don't necessarily want to go there, but the cost of not going there versus those three minutes you know what I mean? Like there's just all of these ways that it is survival based, that it is practical, that women make decisions about weighing out all the tensions in their life and what the effect on them versus their kids, their family situation, you know what I mean? Their work situation, the instability, there's no resilience for it. And there's a lot of no, and there's no counseling and there's no money because you don't have the time and you don't have this. And so these characters in 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 my novel, the character Livy, the other guy probably shouldn't have said that, but um, they're moving with practicality. But it is and it is how they have to move. But it is also not true in the case of those characters that while they are experiencing extreme disorientation about like why do I have to take this on or not take this on, um, they are not. They're also not carrying out the narrative of what one act should mean. There's a resilience to them that they don't want to let one act define everything about them and be this thing they have to carry. And so they are, I mean, one, the other sister has a very different reaction um, to the situation, but I think that's because people are, able to protect each other and the people in the center of it are weighing out practical choices. Vanessa, can I, can I link this back to the very provocative thing you said about, you know, maybe five minutes ago about violence and nonviolence, because here we are again talking about violence. So here, here we are going full circle. As the editor of Nonviolence News, Rivera, I bet you have to answer many different questions about the meaning of the word nonviolence. I've, I've also spent my life as a you know, deeply devoted proponent of Gandhian nonviolence or Martin Luther King nonviolence. I consider Martin Luther King the you know, greatest role model I can think of in the United States, at least. 
I have my own answer to this, but I also have the editor of Nonviolence News here. So Rivera, what do you have to say about violence and nonviolence, especially in light of all the very um, heavy and truthful stuff Vanessa was just saying about a woman who was attacked or vulnerable? Yeah, you know, the funny thing about nonviolence is that we tend to think of it as black or white, uh, that you're either violent or you're nonviolent. And really, it is a very complex field. Nonviolence can describe everything from a way of communicating with one another that respects each other to a strike or a boycott, a tactic of nonviolent action in which you're not using violence as your agent of making change. Right, you're withdrawing your cooperation and your support. You may be getting in the way of the injustice without causing physical harm to the other person. Nonviolence can also describe things that we would say are systemic or structural solutions, things like restorative justice or peace building or conflict resolution skills or even shutting down the toxic incinerator in your neighborhood. Right, so nonviolence is this enormous word. And I think one of the things we get trapped in in our soundbite culture is wanting to be able to to figure out what's on one side of that word and what's on the other side of that word without th- saying this could be really nuanced and we also try to go silver bullet solution on it like you got to be a nonviolent in all situations and i actually don't think that's a very uh sensible approach to the conversation i think you know when it comes to physical self defense, that's not a question I can answer for you or for anyone else. I know what I might aspire to in the situations that I can envision or train for. I also don't know what's going to happen on the ground. I can try to skill up my toolbox of de-escalation, my toolbox of um, other types of uh, nonviolence. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a practice, not a like, it's, it's not as a, a switch you flip, Right. And so I think that it's really important to be able to speak to that complexity in our world and to let it be complex and to let it your answer not be everybody else's answer and to understand that there is a difference between philosophic aspirations and pragmatic tactics that we employ in the world. For example, this happens in nonviolent movements all the time um, or labor organizing is a great example. We may say our code of conduct is that we're not going to punch the other people in the face, right? We may never use the word nonviolence, but we are essentially using a nonviolent tactic and a code of conduct that means that we're not going to use violence in our struggle. We're going to aspire to because things happen, right? And sometimes as movements, we've got to figure out what to deal with it, do when we lose our discipline and we get blowback, we get pushback, you know, so it's very complex. And it's also, you know, there's a really big difference between nonviolence in the con- the context of personal self-defense, nonviolence in terms of movement strategy, nonviolence in terms of structures and systems, nonviolence in terms of approach to foreign policies, i.e. peace strategies. And they're not necessarily interchangeable, right? They, they're all fields that may overlap, but you can't t- say, oh, the way you should deal with your domestic abuser is with a strike, right? That may not work at all. It may work, right? But it probably is not the tool that you need for that situation. So yeah, I like to live into the complexity of that, both in trainings and teachings and organizings. uh, And then also in, that's a big theme in my novels, is like talking about these kind of complexities on the ground without trying to make a one shoe fits all kind of equation. Yeah, I love that. I love the sort of reframing of it as not one or the other. um, Because I think it's not only realistic, but it allows for growth and allows for nuance. And I think that, you know, nuance is really something that is critical and critically missing in a lot of a lot of places, but also really on the left. Like this is this is a tradition in the left that goes back to Maoism, that goes back to other things where it's there's sort of the, you know, a dogmatic self uh, criticism that has to happen in a public setting, and you know what I mean. Like so, there is really a long tradition on the left of litmus testing on a lot of things that I think is probably filled by evangelical religion on the right, um, to some degree, but at least with the I mean, the evangelical religion still allows 
for some sense of, you know, there's a salvation narrative that goes back and forth that takes the personal shame off people in a way, <laughs> in, you know, in certain aspects can sort of then actually create celebrity, can create, uh, you know, this kind of thing around it. And it's different on the left. It's another, it's another dynamic, right? Um, just quickly, there's one thing I do want to say about what you just said about the strike not being a, uh, an answer to domestic violence. Uh, agreed is a tactic. However, the most profound thing that happens in organizing when it's really done is, and I've never seen it fail, is that it's transformative in a way that almost every place I've ever organized, and I've worked a lot with women because I've worked a lot with healthcare, and you know, um, the people who are on the organizing committee, the people who are leading and or around or engaged in it, there are always multiple stories after a strike or after major actions where they leave their partners. They get out of violent marriages. They learn to drive. They get glasses they've needed for 20 years. They do start doing all of these things and radically change their lives. And it is so common that, you know, a, a, a union leader of 40 years that I know and respect greatly says, you know, he was half known as the person who like just killed marriages for like all of his, you know, because this sense of transformation goes in other places. But that's a, a smaller point and your point is absolutely correct about tactics. I've struggled with the nonviolent communication techniques in part because I think they really I think the danger of the way that collectives sometimes uh particularly and I think this came out of feminist collectives. Like I, I think it, the intention was really good, but I think it came out of a feminist collective model, which is, you know, this um no one should be a leader, nobody should be right, you know, I mean like all of these things. And and sometimes the effect of that is that the power dynamics go underground in a way where people who really have power are disowning it and they're putting it back into other people, not in a productive way. What I mean is they're disowning it. So they're saying, well, I'm not this or I'm not that. So that it never comes onto the floor to be discussed for real because they're not owning their own leadership in the situation. They're sort of taking that pass. If you have leadership in that situation, by which I mean people listen to you and look to you for certain things, and you are pretending that that is not true, um, things get really passive aggressive. And there is a real issue with the not, from my experience in the nonviolent communication things, that it really does put women in prisons in a lot of ways by saying, you can't have this feeling and you can't have that feeling. And like, this is, so things get really super passive aggressive and it feels like shadow boxing, you know, power dynamics that are social in a way that is not coming forth to be engaged with honestly. And when you try to come forth, engage, you're like, I feel like something's happening here. And I feel like you're not owning, you know, your position. Oh no, no, no. You know what I mean? Like, and there's, there's also a way that I think people who it, and I think it's it, it can be very exclusionary. The people I've met in restorative justice who've just blown me away are very authentic, engaged people in their humanity that are struggling with anger, like even just justifiable anger, and they are choosing a different path forward. And then there's an intensity to that. And I don't think that that has much of a home in the way that most people talk about nonviolent communication. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about some of those things. I think one of the challenges with a lot of things, um, nonviolent communication definitely is is wrestling with this very thing. And I think restorative justice is finding itself kind of on the edge of this is what to do when you start to expand um, out of people who have spent a lot of time thinking about why they're using this tool and how they're using it and what are the pitfalls of it to people who are learning a formula um, and rolling that out and maybe missing some of the nuances of our human condition of, of who we are, the, the honesty, the transparency, the, the real stuff of it all. And I think that's a challenge uh, with a lot of our structures, like our, especially new ideas that we don't have. A lot of us don't have cultural background for engaging with. We've got, we were bringing our stuff to it as well. You mentioned about 
leaders who are pretending not to be leaders. And, you know, when I wrote the Dandelion Insurrection and the Roots of Resistance and now the third book in that trilogy, I was really grappling with the challenge around the Occupy movement about this leaderful, leaderless uh, organizing structure, which we know on the ground caused lots of challenges in terms of abuses happening and not being held accountable, um, privilege playing out in unproductive ways, people not being actually equally heard. And so then the, the question is really kind of circling back to things that Ella Baker brought forward of leaderful she didn't necessarily use that particular word, but leaderful organizing, where we try to cultivate the capacity of each person to take on some of the roles and responsibilities with less of the ego and grandstanding that charismatic leaders get known for, to be able to pass leadership from one to the other um, in ways that are respectful and I don't think it can ever be seamless, but maybe a little more smooth than some of the power struggles, Game of Thrones type of things we see. And that kind of ties back into this creative work of like, when you work in a creative sphere, we explore both the problems that we face and the possibilities that are right around the corner. Uh, we try to model through our characters exploring some of these ideas um, for better or for worse. And uh, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this, Vanessa, but for me, the best characters are not the ones who get it right in the first go-round. They're the ones who, because of who they are, have both great strengths, but those strengths become their weaknesses, and they transgress, they err, they, t they stumble and fall. And then in the picking themselves back up, learning and integrating, that's what we need to learn. That's what shows us how to walk through the fire of our own moments. And to me, creative work is one of the best places to show those because otherwise we're seeing them in real time, often on our social media platforms in this, I forget what you called it, uh, but it goes back to the Maoist tradition of, you know, a public apology and bashing phenomenon, which is really not very helpful um, in terms of actually fostering changes that get integrated. So creative work has space to actually show the difficult things um, and show the growth and the change in ways that we're really struggling to keep track of in the public sphere. Yeah, I think that's a problem in our in our the way that we relate to people is that we don't allow room for growth. We will go back 20 years to a story that happened 20 years ago and presume that they're that exact same person. And in some cases, that's true. And we need to follow their track record and hold them accountable. In other cases, it's completely not true. And we're really condemning us all to a model of human experience that is actually not all that frequent because humans are creatures that grow and change over time. Yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, I loved your term leaderful. I haven't heard that. I think that there's positional, I mean, positional leadership. And then there's another kind of leadership, which is that humans are free to decide who they trust. And they have decided they people decide who they trust. And that is part of the social animal. And it's easy to judge from the outside why that is or isn't. But it is a fact. And it is also to me not not my place to decide who someone trusts. I think the charismatic issue is often those people are not leaders. That's they're using a set of tactics and skills to move people into an experience that is an experience they want. Um, and sometimes those people are also leaders and they're charismatic. And I think really great leaders who are charismatic spend a lot of time in one-on-ones trying to shut down the charisma to see what's there. You know, that's something that like, you know, make yourself a little bit more blank to see what's there or take it into account that you have this effect on people that, you know, I mean, so there's, there's, I think, skill sets around that. I think that, yeah. And I also like watching Occupy was something that I found, you know, beautiful and incredibly frustrating because to me, those kinds of how do we all get on the street and have this moment? Because I was in WTO, I've been in a lot of other things. It just, I've watched it. It just breaks into nothing after a period of time. And like it kind of diminishes in a lot of ways. And I think that we really do need structural organizing that can continue through those moments and lead through those moments in a lot of ways. I want to talk about uh, two other things quickly that you mentioned. 
In terms of the uh, how do you have a restorative justice model and you take the language and the sort of skill set and the sort of codes that are built inside this very insular, more insular community, and then you go into the communities where there desperately is a need to address that and it no longer, there's too much, um, I, I, I find a lot that there's just so much coded language that it becomes you know, it's not inclusive. What What do you mean and, by coded language? Okay, so I'll give you an example. Uh, some of the stuff that's been happening, I think, around the country, but I'm just going to speak from our experiences. So we're uh, a large union, and we're a union that is working very, very hard um, to be an anti-racist organization, and is very, very committed and committed a lot of resources to that. And it's and we're also in a very white state. Uh, it's like 85% white or something like that, 80% in, in Oregon. So that means our members are, uh, some of them because of the home care side are, are disproportionately, you know, out of, out of that line, but it's still a really, really high number. And I remember being on a meeting. So the union itself has been doing a lot of education with, you know, there's 160 staff because there's 72,000 people, right? So they, the union itself has been doing a lot of education and that gets more and more refined and more and more refined and the language gets more and more specific and the new violences are identified again and again. And like things just, there's a great push to the academy and how we talk about these things and, and sort of finding new language to describe, they're real things, but finding this. So it ends up being, I remember sitting in a meeting with a bunch of members and, you know, there was a sort of training and talking about language, you know, uh, really about language that was to be used and not be used and, and engaged with and how to move members on it who were not coming from that in the sense that there's a lot of like white middle class dudes in our union as well because there's state sector, um, you know, and how to have those conversations. And I remember this woman in my breakout group. Uh, who was an African-American woman in a very rural Oregon setting. And she was listening and she was just like, the language was not what she, and she, I remember she saying, stopping it and saying, you don't understand. The Klan is following me home. I need to be able to talk to my white neighbors about what's happening to me. It's the actual Klan. And there's no, you know what I mean? So I really distrust these like sort of extremely academic. I mean, I think it's people, I think white people have to code switch on that stuff, you know, a little bit. Like if you're in an academic setting talking about all these things, great, use those terms, get into that, but don't use them as a way that people don't belong. Like the disconnect between the people of color who are really struggling with a lot of these other things is not about asking somebody to use certain elements of language. It's about like being able to hear them. And, and so I, I find that to be a similar issue. And then the, the other thing about writing with that, you talked about your characters not um, not having not getting it right the first time. I think a lot with my characters, they never get it right. Um, and and one of the things that Tolstoy did that I always just thought was like mind blowing if you you know, I, I loved War and Peace and I read it multiple times and he had characters that didn't get along with each other. And that made mistakes or had very strong points of view that didn't get resolved. So he had major characters that never kind of got along and didn't like each other. And he didn't resolve them in the end. They continued to have those relationships for like 20 years. They still kind of didn't like each other. They still kind of didn't, you know, see each other's viewpoint. And they still had other lives. And there was this whole thing about not resolving that I found really powerful. And so you know, when this last book, you know, the first book, the narrator, narrator was very political. And this last book, the characters are not political at all. The world is political, but around them, but they're not. And, and, and I think there's a lack of, you know, anyway. That's, so I thought it was interesting what you were saying about like not getting it right. And, and I, and I think it's absolutely true. And I think it's also sometimes powerful to me when they never get it right. And they kind of move on in their imperfections and they don't all come to terms with each other for the convenience of the story. Both of your heroes, I mean, your second novel is really has two heroes. Or It's funny that I'm using the word heroes. Both of your, what do you call them, main characters, primary characters in your novels go off on really crazy adventures. 
in in Zazen and in the great offshore grounds, which I won't describe, but and you know both of them, I, I would say the adventures are not characterized by either common sense or you know great planning. Um, and there is a comic element to both of your novels for sure. Um, so I agree that your characters don't always get it right, but they are wonderful characters. It's also wonderful that I you've been using the phrase um, not this and not that in response to Rivera. And of course, that's what Ari Aro means is not right. Not this and not that. I really appreciated what you said, Vanessa, about how being in a union action can change your life, can break up a bad marriage, can cause you to reevaluate everything about your life. I would say the exact same thing about a protest. And I know you've been in plenty of protests. So you, I mean, my, I have never been in a union. I'm a web developer. Um, and there ain't no web developers union. There's no union and there's no consistency and there's no, um, you know, it's a very up and down field. My perspective on activism was very much informed by going to protests. And I've gone to protests all my life since high school. To me, it's the most enriching thing. Since the context of this podcast is anti-war activism, I just want to, I have to say my own take on the question of violence, which is different from both of yours, which is that I'm a human being. I have anger. I have emotions. But in a completely separate part of me, I know that war is a condition, an illness, a sickness that is destroying our world that we can end. I can't end my anger. We can end war. So this is my way of being very practical. I separate out the question of would I punch a person who deserves to be punched from can we end war on this planet? Two totally separate questions. I personally do believe in nonviolence. I personally very rarely punch somebody, um, but there are people I would punch and there are people I hope I will punch, but I would never kill someone. And I do believe war can be ended. And that's that's sort of my spin on that question. Yeah, I think that goes into the, the that question of spheres that we were talking about earlier or fields of where, where we apply this question and how we think about it. You know, war is a really different beast than, you know, your righteous anger at someone who has wronged you, right? We we tend to think that it's this, this simple continuum from what I personally feel to what our society does, because that's the narrative we've been telling for 10,000 years. It's like the basis of the, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, well, maybe not the Odyssey so much, but the Iliad or Hercules or, you know, King Arthur. And it, it's a total mythology. Right. Like King Arthur, that whole thing is set up around Arthur returning from the um, not Arthur, sorry, Robin Hood and, and Richard returning from the Crusades. Right. So we have this illusion that the, the Crusades are somehow connected to righteous um, faith when really it was like a whole plundering and conquering. Of, I mean, it's a long story. But to connect this back to something I think is really important is I refuse to believe that the condition of the world that we inhabit right now is has gotten to this place because it's natural to the human condition. There are elements of the human condition like greed that are very prevalent, but I think we have enabled and facilitated the empowerment of greed and its destructiveness through the systems and structures that we have created. And I think it's really important to remember that there are thousands of years of history that have gone into what we experience today. But the very fact that it has changed over time is an indicator that we can unchange it. We can rechange it. We can change it again. We can build the world anew. And that, you know, just as we know, Mark, from our World Beyond War work, that there is a beginning date for organized violence in human history. And it's actually relatively recent on the human timeline, which is 2 million years old, right? Uh, Right. Organized violence goes back about 10,000 BC. We know the first organized strike was in 1170 BC on an Egyptian pyramid where the workers said, hey, we're not going to build your tomb if you're not going to give us our bread wages, right? And that's just the first written down strike. I believe that we can change the condition of the world that we're given in. I think our history shows that people have done it over and over again. And I think it's the job of storytellers to help foster that change, whether we're looking at the human condition or we're looking at how we change 
what we're handed into what we aspire towards. Um, and so that's where I anchor a lot of my work. I have a question for you, Rivera. Um, I share your hope about the, I, I share your belief that we have the capacity for this change in this. And I, sh- and um, the question I have is fundamental to the kind of change you're talking about and the kind of change I believe we all believe in is the dignity of each other's humanity and recognizing it, recognizing the dignity of life, trying to open perspectives to perspectives we don't have, recognizing the ability for each individual to change, all those things. Do you feel that the discourse on the left offers right now in this moment is leading towards that? I think that's a fascinating question. Um, I, I acknowledge that what we call the left is hundreds of millions of people globally. So this is a very large question, but I, I think there's a lot of things that we are doing as organizers that, um, God, that's complicated. So I think there are things that we do on the left that absolutely do not open the space for that kind of change to happen, that we're, we've adopted what my friend Sherry Mitchell Um, who is Penobscot, calls conquest activism, where we're arming up on our side to pound down everybody who disagrees with us. And we've learned from war and violence that that doesn't really necessarily facilitate the kind of world that we want to live in. And that said, I do think the left also has some incredibly beautiful, revolutionary um, vision. Um, I'm thinking about like the Bog Center in Detroit, uh, cooperation Jackson, um, some of the these living laboratories for the kind of world we want to live in. So I see both. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see more of how we personally, interpersonally, and socially or subculturally make the space for these changes to happen. I'd like us to really challenge how we approach the problems that we face. Since you mentioned Tolstoy before, Vanessa, I, once again, I love both of your answers and I really love this conversation. And by the way, there are several questions I haven't even begun to prepare the ground for asking. So we're going to have to do a second round of this in the future. Um, I was going to ask you much more about, you know, how you sustain your lifestyle as writers and all that, but I actually have to just respond to what you're, you were both just talking about. Isn't it also possible that all of this left-right noise is just culture war noise. I'm sure it's just culture war noise. And what's really going on, as Tolstoy told us so vividly in War and Peace, what's really going on is mass movements of humanity in a collective form that is taking its own shape, regardless of the noise on MSNBC and Fox News. And that to understand politics... Man, we need first we need to stop listening to the noisy people. And that's one reason I, I like to have both of you on. Um because because really this has been great. But I believe that the left the left definitely sucks in terms of effectiveness. Not as bad as the like, for instance, here in the United States. The left doesn't suck as bad as the Democratic Party sucks, so the centrists suck even worse. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, we, so, so much, I mean, I love the, the phrase conquest activism, Rivera. I just wrote that down. Conquest activism. It's, there's a, there's a lot of anger. I have to say, and this is not a plug at World Beyond War. We get along very well. We really do. We're a lot of people all over the world. We don't see that in fighting. I will have to say anti-war activists do better at getting along than other left organizations. Now, Marxists and democratic socialists, on the other hand, that's a different story. But I also have to say the Bernie Sanders movement, which is now I see as the squad movement in the United States, is very inspiring and could work. So this is just the torrent of thoughts that came out of me in hearing all of this. I think we do have to wrap up, and I really do want to talk again. There's a quote from a writer, which I'm going to throw out here. A writer named Stephen Mulhauser had a quote. Um, 
what he's trying to get at as a writer is the forgotten strangeness of things. That's what he's trying to bring the reader to, is the forgotten strangeness of things. And so my thought is that definitely activists, some of the most hardworking, dedicated, busy people you'll ever meet, sometimes are working so hard that maybe a podcast about fiction is a way for us to bring them to the forgotten strangeness of anti-war activism or activism in general, including what you do as an, a union organizer, Vanessa. I wish we could go on talking longer now, but instead I'd love to have both of you back soon. I think there's so much more to say. Thank you, Vanessa Veselka and Rivera Sun. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.